And God's word says this. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of, uh, of, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that, is good, that it is good for them to remain single as I am, but if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So today, um, as most of you are aware, we are speaking about intimacy in marriage. And if you've missed my warning this past week, which I, I think everybody probably got it, or at least those that it was relevant for, um, if you didn't get a hint from the scripture that we just read, um, I, I want to say it again before I utter the S word, which I'm probably going to come up about over 150 times today. I looked in my, in my transcript here. The sermon's going to be mature, kind of a PG-13 sermon. It won't be crass, won't be crude, explicit, or vulgar. But I will say some things that um, are mature that um, you may or may not have discussed with your kids. And so if they pay attention, they're probably going to notice, um, some, you know, some words that they may not be used to hearing on, on a regular basis. And so, um, again, if anybody, if anybody missed the warning, um, we, we allowed kids, uh, older kids, to go to nursery today. Um, normally that's only up to age three, um, but we made a, an exception for that today. And also, parents, I would encourage you, um, after you hear this sermon, um, you know, you may think that it's that it's fine uh, for your for your older kid or whatever to hear, um, and so you know, feel free. The audio will be posted on our website, vintagedesoto.com, uh, in the next day or so, and feel free to go back and and let your kids hear that. Um, so anyway. So today, as we near the end of our series on the Kingdom Family, and as we anticipate our uh, Habits of a Healthy Marriage Conference uh, next weekend, we're going to talk about intimacy in marriage, which is really just a churchy, churchy euphemism for sex, right? Specifically, uh, we're going to be discussing what the world's messages about sex tell us, um, and look at how those compare to what the Bible teaches us about sex. And we're going to look at several different areas where those messages are different. However, before we get too far, uh, let me say this. Sex is good. It's a very good and wonderful creation of a good God. In fact, sex is good because it was created by a good God. God created sex. He knew exactly what he was doing when he created sex. And if you ever think about it, like from an engineering standpoint, I mean, God knocked it out of the park when he created sex. God, you ever think about this? God designed the orgasm. Okay, I'm not trying to be vulgar here. But that was God's idea. And he implemented it and gave it to his creation as a gift. He knew what he was doing. So sex shouldn't be something that is taboo in the church. Of course, we want to have age-appropriate conversations, but it shouldn't be taboo. 
We shouldn't let the world have a, a monopoly on sex because it belongs to God, and thus it belongs to God's people. And so sex should be celebrated, it should be discussed, it should be had in the right context, and it should be used by God and by his people for his glory. Yet so often Christians are portrayed as being opposed to sex. And of course, the Bible is opposed to uh, lots of types of sex, right? Outside of specific parameters. The Bible uh, it, it teaches us that sex outside of those parameters doesn't honor God, that it's sin. So Christians are opposed to premarital sex, to gay sex, to extramarital sex. And so often the world assumes that because Christians are known for those things, that Christians believe that sex is bad, that it's dirty, that it's something that we don't talk about. You know, maybe it's like a necessary evil, but that's it. And often that message, unfortunately, I think, tends to pervade what we in the church teach about sex or more often what we fail to teach about sex. But nothing could be further from the truth, church. Sex is a very, very good thing created by a very good God who knew what he was doing when he created it. See, the first thing that God says about human beings in the book of Genesis, after looking at all of his creation and seeing that it was good, he said, but wait a minute, it's not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. And it goes on to tell us that Adam and Eve, the first husband and wife, were naked and unashamed. See, God knew what he was doing when he created sex. And sex is a wonderful thing. I think that it's an evidence of God's common grace to all of his creation. It points us to a good creator who loves for his creation to experience pleasure. And that pleasure should point us back to the God who designed it. Yet like so many things, so many things, while sex is good, it is only good within the boundaries that God created it to exist within. So let me say this very emphatically before we get started today. Sex is good, but it's only good when it exists in the context of a marriage between a man and a woman. So any sex outside of consensual, heterosexual monogamy is a perversion of God's intent. And it's an abomination before a holy God. The Bible takes this very seriously. It holds back nothing. Listen to, the, to how serious the Bible takes this. In Ephesians 5, 3-5, it says, sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is an idolater. Interesting, those are alongside things. Covetousness and sexual immorality. Has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. So listen to me, church. If you are unmarried, you need to know that while this sermon hopefully can inform your understanding of sex and hopefully will benefit your understanding of sex as you search for and hopefully a spouse and hopefully get married one day if that's the desire that God's placed within you, nothing I say today is meant to be applied by you before you are married. In fact, uh, another translation of one of those verses we, re we read that says there should not even be a hint of sexual immorality among us. 
And so that means, you know, if we flirt with those boundaries and think, well, it's not intercourse, so it's probably, no. Not even a hint of sexual immorality. See, God gave people the gift of sex exclusively to be used within the boundaries of marriage. And those boundaries were actually created for our good. Much like a fence around a yard keeps uh, kids inside to keep them from straying into traffic, if you play outside the fence, you will get run over. You will experience the destructive consequences of perverting what God intended for good. And I can guarantee you this. You may not think it's that big of a deal because it's very normal to use sex outside of the boundaries that God placed on it. But I can guarantee you this. If you speak with any genuine Christian, someone who's really pursuing the Lord, who has in the past or whatever used sex outside of the boundaries that God designed it for, used it in sinful ways, you won't find one, whether they admit it or not, who has not seen consequences for that sin. Now, I know that Jesus washes away all that sin, but God still gives us earthly consequences for our sin. And you won't find one who, whether they admit it or not, doesn't regret those choices that they made to use what God designed for good in a way that was not good. You might have seen uh, in the news this past week um, news about a Christian author who is unfortunately going through divorce. That's what the, uh, the story was about. His name's Joshua Harris. Um, and he and his wife are, are getting a divorce. And if you're not familiar with that name, Joshua Harris was a popular author uh, back in the late 90s in uh, what critics of Christianity like to refer to as the, quote, evangelical purity culture. Uh, Joshua Harris wrote a book called I Kiss Dating Goodbye. Maybe you've read that or maybe you've heard of it. Uh, if you're of a certain age, you may have. Uh, and he wrote a lot of, lot of other books uh, that kind of contributed to uh, that movement. Maybe you uh, had a true love weights ring back in the day or something like that. Um, and so those things were designed to promote premarital abstinence. But those who criticize this so-called evangelical purity culture would say that, no, that's, that's, that's Puritan stuff. You know, you're just shaming people for their natural desires. You're making people feel guilty uh, for wanting to have sex before marriage. Everybody has sex before marriage, they would say. They'd say that God's more concerned about you being fulfilled and feeling loved than, than you following some Puritan ideals of, of abstinence. But you can, you can call it what you want. Purity culture, whatever. The Bible is quite clear. Any sex other than consensual sex between husband and wife is sinful. And this is not to say that there aren't problems with that so-called purity culture that perhaps lead people down a path of simply behavior modification. Uh, Maybe it teaches them a works-based righteousness and convinces them that if they fail to live up to that standard that they're damaged goods, that they've blown it. That's not to say that you can't be forgiven for sexual sin, because you most certainly can, as countless people can attest to. Jesus stands ready and willing to forgive your sin, to cleanse you from all unrighteousness if you would confess and repent. But please, unmarried people, I beg you, don't look at sex before marriage as simply culturally normal and something you should just do because everybody else does it's, don't think that it's no big deal. Because if you play with fire, you will get burned. And it may take a long time for you to feel the full extent of that burn. But God designed this good gift to be used within parameters. So please don't take it outside of those parameters. Because if you do, I promise you, you'll get burned. 
So today, as I mentioned, we want to take a look at what the world tells us about sex and compare it to what the Bible tells us about sex. You know, when Morgan preached a few weeks ago about singleness and dating, he said that he looked uh, in the Bible for a biblical example of, of how to do dating in the, in the right way. And he said the best he could tell, if you want to pursue a girl to marry, uh, you have to go work for her father for seven years. Then you have to marry her ugly sister. And then you have to work for her father for seven more years. And then you get the girl. Um, obviously he's talking about Jacob in the Old Testament. But similarly, a lot of what we see and learn in the Bible about sex is what not to do. Right? There are countless biblical examples from biblical characters that we would otherwise consider heroes of their sexual immorality. The Bible's full of things like polygamy and rape and incest, adultery. I mean, all manner of sexual immorality is present in the Bible. Often committed by some of those same characters that we consider to be, you know, heroes or at least examples for us. I mean, take Abraham. He failed to believe God's promise that God was going to give him an offspring, right? And so he took the situation into his own hands and essentially forced his servant to prostitute her body for him. Take David, the so-called man after God's own heart, who used his power as king to indulge his lust and forced the married Bathsheba to have sex with him, and they got her husband killed to try to cover it up. Or take Solomon, right, the wisest king who ever lived. This fool had 700 wives and 300 concubines. I mean, there are countless other examples of how not to behave sexually that are present in the Bible. And you can see, if you read those accounts and many others, the, the destruction that those sexual sins caused in the lives of those people. However, we don't just want to look at what not to do sexually. Again, Christians should be known as people who are pro-sex. We shouldn't spend so much time rightfully teaching what we are opposed to sexually that we missed all the wonder things that we are for sexually. And so let's spend a few minutes uh, comparing six different areas where the world's sexual standard is at odds with what the Bible teaches us about sex. And these are in no, no particular order, um, but let, let's just go through them. Firstly, the world tells us that sex is primarily about getting, but the Bible teaches us that sex is about giving. See, the world tells us that sex is all about you. In fact, one of the most common euphemisms that we hear for sex is that it's when you get some, right? And really, this makes sense in the context of um, a culture that exists outside of, uh, of surrendering their lives to Christ, right? For people who have not surrendered to the glory of Christ and the good of their neighbor, really, life is about you. It's about you and what you can get, what you can accumulate. Is it any wonder then that the world encourages people to pursue sex for their own pleasure? To pursue sexual conquest at any cost? And to stop at nothing in the pursuit of sexual satisfaction? But conversely, does the Bible, actually Jesus himself, not teach us it's more blessed to, re to give than to receive? That because freely we have received, we are to freely give it does not teach us to outdo one another in showing kindness. Or what about this one, Philippians 2, 3, and 4? Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, 
but also to the interest of others. Now, of course, these biblical calls to be people who are defined by generosity apply to far more than the bedroom, but they don't apply to less. These standards certainly apply to husband and wife in the bedroom. See, 1 Corinthians 7 that we looked at earlier says, the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights. Another biblical euphemism for sex. Give to her wife, to his wife, her conjugal rights. And likewise, the wife to her husband. doesn't say we should take our conjugal rights. There's a word for that. It's rape. We should give conjugal rights to our spouses. See, Christians should be defined as people who give. Forgetting about their own needs as they prioritize the needs of their neighbor. And in the bedroom, loving your neighbor as yourself means caring more for their pleasure than your own. Gary Thomas, an author who speaks a lot on marriage, uh, says this. Too often the sexual relationship is divorced from our faith experience. Popular magazines tell us a fulfilling sexual relationship is all about passion, physical pleasure, performance, desire, and technical know-how. And while these elements are all important, they are also all secondary. God can use the sexual relationship to teach us how to serve our mates. And when we do that, we become like our Savior. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. I mean, what do you think it means for husband and wife to outdo one another in showing kindness when it comes to your sex life? For starters, I think that it means making sure that your spouse's pleasure comes before yours in the bedroom, both in terms of your priorities and chronologically, if you understand what I'm saying. Can you imagine how great married sex is for people who consistently apply that standard in the bedroom? Outdo one another in showing kindness. It's like a sexual competition to see who can outdo the other in giving pleasure. Spouses who say, this isn't about me, so I'm going to give my spouse every ounce of effort to make sure this is incredible for them. Now, church, that's you, you read Cosmo or whatever and, and compare that to the biblical message. That's a recipe for great sex. And sex like that gives glory to the God who designed it to be great. Outdo one another in showing kindness. So the world says sex is about getting Bible teaches us it's about giving because we're to be defined as people who are generous. Secondly, the world tells us that sex is about our bodies. The Bible says that sex is about our souls. Now, of course, sex is about our bodies, but it's not only about our bodies. I mean, if physical pleasure didn't exist in sex, then, you know, we might say it's only about our souls, but it does. I mean, God made sex to feel good on purpose. He didn't have to do that. Right? It's evidence of God's grace. He didn't have to give. He didn't have to make sex like the pinnacle of human pleasure. Non-Christians might say that sex feels good because in order for humans to propagate the species, people need a biological desire to have sex. But that simply isn't true, right? I mean, there are many necessary biological processes that we engage in on a daily or weekly basis that aren't necessarily something that we enjoy, I'm not trying to be like gross or disgusting. Just think through the day, the things that you have to do to survive as a human. You have to sleep. You have to eat. You have to do what you do after you eat, right? And you do all those things, not necessarily because they give you pleasure. Many of them don't. But because you have a biological instinct to do those things. 
There's not, it is not necessary uh, for us to experience pleasure in order to fulfill a biological instinct. So I believe that the existence of pleasure, period, like any kind of pleasure, but specifically sexual pleasure, is evidence of God's grace. And so if every good and perfect gift is from God, which the Bible tells us it is, we can be certain that the good and perfect gift of sexual pleasure is evidence of God's grace. So sex, of course, is about our bodies. It is about physical pleasure. But the world simply stops there, right? It's only about you and your pleasure. I mean, and after all, if humans are simply the process of an unguided evolutionary process, we're really just animals anyway, following our biological instincts. And so the only reason to pursue sex for the world, and the only bit of having it, is pleasure, The world's sexual standard can be described by the rather honest lyrics of rapper 50 Cent who said, I'm into having sex. I ain't into making love. And you got to admire his honesty, right? That's what the world teaches. It's about having sex. It has nothing to do with anything deeper. But for the Christian, sex is about our souls. It's about something far more than the physical. Something metaphysical happens when husband and wife have sex. So sex is not just the contact of body parts. It's the mingling of souls. That's why 1 Corinthians 6 tells us, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin, listen to this, every other sin a person commits is outside the body. That's the world standard, outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. See, sex is far more than just physical pleasure. For in the bedroom, the Bible tells us that two become one. I mean, there is a peculiar and miraculous thing that happens when two people have sex. For they are connecting themselves on a spiritual level. And inside the confines of marriage, that supernatural union is like absolutely nothing else in this world. You know, God, again, I mentioned that he was the engineer of sex. God also designed sexual brain chemistry. And there's this chemical in our brains that that, uh, is kind of colloquially referred to as the bonding chemical. It's called oxytocin. And when 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 an infant uh, is nursing uh, with its mother, that baby's brain releases oxytocin. Um, because that helps form a bond between the nursing baby and the mother. And why do you think that is? It's because God wants those two people to bond in a very special way. It's the bonding chemical. Well, according to Gary Thomas again, women usually have up to ten times more oxytocin in their brains than men do. But he says that there's only one time in human experience... When the husband's level of oxytocin begins to approach that of his wife's. And that's immediately following an act of sexual intimacy. A.K.A. post-orgasm. Okay? 
Told you, it's not for kids today. A man's brain literally rebonds with his spouse as a result of this release of oxytocin in his brain. And God did that. He knew what he was doing. God designed husband and wife to bond in such a way that, that, that their brains would release chemicals to, to strengthen those bonds. So if we reduce sex merely to animalistic, biological instincts, we miss the point. Actually, feel sorry for the world for thinking sex is only about body parts. See, God created us for sex that is so much more fulfilling and wonderful and satisfying than we can imagine. Because it's about our souls. Third, the world says sex is about novelty. The Bible says sex is about consistency. Now, like much of, we are, much of what we are discussing today, these standards of the world don't just apply to sex. I mean, the world loves novelty in all its forms, right? The, celebrating what is new and shunning what is old. I mean, Wayman, tell us. What, people like to bring in their, their old cars, and their old car may have 100,000 miles on it, right? Trade it for something new, right? If you got an old car, get your new one. <laughs> And help, help pay Wayman's bills. If your iPhone is so old that it still has more than one place to plug things into it, get a new one. Your boss is a jerk? Quit. Get a new job. Your football team sucks this year? Be a champion chaser. Get a new team. Your wife isn't as hot or interesting as she used to be? Get a new one. The world loves to celebrate what is new and to shun what has faded, what feels old. Because as we discussed earlier, those uh, those who don't know Christ live for themselves by default. And so it only makes sense that they would celebrate and pursue the newer model every time the new wears off and something or someone gets boring or difficult. But that's not what Scripture teaches us. Proverbs 5, 18 through 19 says, Rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer. A graceful doe. Let her breast fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Can I say as an aside, uh, Proverbs is full of exhortations like that. Also, uh, the book of Song of Solomon, if we just read that this morning, we need all the kids out. That's definitely R-rated stuff. And that is a recipe for good sex. So if you, you read the Bible, if you need to stimulate your sex life. Let her breast fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. See, Christian husbands and wives, you can be absolutely guaranteed that the infatuation and the excitement of the newness of a relationship, as exciting as it is, it's going to wear off. You can be guaranteed that your spouse's body won't be the same decades after you get married. Because our bodies... I hate to tell you this, our bodies don't naturally progress in the trajectory of sexy. Okay? They tend to deteriorate. And so our bodies are going to be different decades after our wedding day. But as exhilarating as it might be for you to imagine what sex with someone new might be like in in your mind's fantasy, can you imagine something else with me for just a moment? If a couple's been married for, say, 20 years. 20 years. And say that couple averages having sex once a week. You know, everybody's average, of course, is different. 
20 years, average sex is once a week. That couple will have had sex together over a thousand times over the course of 20 years. Can you imagine what it must be like after having sex with the same person a thousand times to know every little thing about what drives your spouse wild? To know exactly how to send them to the moon and back because you've rehearsed it a thousand times? I mean, the world can have its God of novelty. I don't, I don't want any part of that. Our God wants us to delight in our spouse's bodies. As they grow old, as they grow saggy, as our hair turns gray and falls out, as our teeth falls out, God says delight in the wife of your youth. Be intoxicated with their body. I can't imagine anything that's more sexually fulfilling than that. The world has so much more for sex than the world teaches us. It's not about novelty. It's about consistency over decades together. Fourth, the world says that sex is about consent. The Bible says sex is about covenant. See, if you pay much attention to the world's messages about sex, I think it seems to have shifted in recent years. In the past, I think there seemed to be at least some level of commitment expected from people who chose to have sex together, or at least um, maybe this is not the best barometer of cultural messaging, but I think if you look at like your average uh, network sitcoms, you can get a pretty good idea of the, the world's priorities. And of course, you know, sex is prevalent on TV. And it seems like when I was a kid, uh, or not that we watched like dirty sitcoms as a kid, but like there's still sexual messages uh, in, in TV shows. Um, and it seemed like the prevalent message, you know, maybe 20 years ago, was something like, you know, sex is special. Wait to have sex with someone you feel special with. Or you want your first time to be with someone you really care about. Um, it, you know, those messages, of course, fall far short of what the Bible teaches us. But at least they acknowledge something about sex as being special. And that those who engage in it should be at least somebody you care about on some level. But it seems like nowadays the world's sexual standard has evolved to where the bare minimum requirement for the world of what is ethically appropriate sex is simply consent, right? There's nothing about sex being mutually fulfilling, about caring for the other person, about it being special, giving sex as a gift to your partner. I mean, it's, for the world, as long as your partner doesn't say no, then it's all good. That's Ethical win for you. So basically, to the world, ethically responsible sex is one word above rape. So with such a low standard like that, isn't it any wonder that rape is prevalent? If consent is the only bar for what is morally responsible sex for the world, and of course consent might be withdrawn at any point during the sexual experience, many people who engage in casual sex particularly under the influence of alcohol or other substances, they might have to think back, did I, commit, did I commit rape? I mean, I don't remember what happened. Was I raped? I don't know. Like, I don't remember if I said yes. I, I mean, that's the world standard. Don't say no, and it's not rape. But for the Christian, the bar is way up here. It's radically higher than the world standard of mere consent. Now, of course, let me say this. Consent is always necessary, even in sex between husband and wife. 
And if a husband or wife has sex with their spouse without their consent, that's rape and should be pursued to the fullest extent of the law. They are a criminal and they're dangerous and they should be prosecuted. So, again, like most of these things, I'm not saying that the world's standard isn't right. It just falls far short. But consent is necessary. The Bible doesn't simply call spouses to be okay with sex, though. Gary Thomas puts it this way. He says, Though sex can be extremely pleasurable, that's not God's end purpose. Though sex can reduce tension, that's not God's primary design for it. Though it can satisfy, at least temporarily, hormonal urges, that's not why God created it. First and foremost, beyond reproduction, of course, God created a physical act to preserve the marriage and renew the bonds of affection between husband and wife. For starters, as we mentioned before, sex that honors God can only occur between husband and wife. Those who've entered into this lifelong covenant with one another in both joy and in pain, for better and for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, until death separates them. So sex between spouses then is not about taking what is yours for your own satisfaction, but about rehearsing those covenant vows that were made on the wedding day. Every time a married couple engages in sex, they are re-ratifying their covenant to one another and to God. Married sex is covenant ratification. So remember that the next time your spouse asks you if you're ready for a little Netflix and covenant ratification, okay? Now, I don't want this to sound, uh, this to sound sacrilegious, but I think in many ways, sex between husband and wife is kind of like communion. Now, bear with me. I'm not, I promise you I'm not being sacrilegious here. Like I tell you every week before we take the Lord's Supper, when Jesus broke the bread and he took the cup and he gave it to his friends as a symbol of his body and blood, he said to them, this do in remembrance of me. And Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 11 that as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So communion is a remembrance of the covenant love that was purchased for us by Jesus on the cross. And it's also an anticipation of the covenant meal that we will share together when we arrive at eternity's shore. In the same way, when husband and wife have sex, they are remembering the words of Scripture that a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. They are remembering that the two have become one. And every time they behold and delight in one another's flesh, they are reminded of that divine spiritual union that only the covenant of marriage can create. Now, don't take this to mean that sex always has to be like a sacred event. I think sex should be fun. It should be spontaneous. It, I mean, even wild and crazy, right? This is your spouse. I'm not saying that you have to play K-Love in the bedroom, that you need to spend an hour in prayer together before you get naked. But I'm saying that God is glorified when husband and wife give one another the physical pleasures of sex. And it should be a reminder to spouses that while their bodies are tangled, their souls are mingled. Isn't that why we use the euphemism, making love? 
Of course, sex isn't creating something that's not already there. But within the context of the covenant, lifelong relationship of marriage, sex is a reminder of the covenant love and a re-ratification of that covenant. Praise God. Married sex is a very good and covenant-ratifying action. Got a couple more for you. Fifth, the world says that sex is about pleasure. The Bible says sex is about procreation. Now here's where we could venture into an area that might be a little controversial. You know, we've established that earlier that the world views sex simply as a means of getting your own pleasure. And that's the only reason to have sex for the world. Consequences be damned. It's essentially the culture that I think that birth control has created. Not to say that all birth control is bad, but when you remove the consequences of sex, then sex is only ever about you and your desires. Don't let anything stand between you and your pleasure. But if sex was was part of God's original design for humanity, even before they sinned, which it was, so too was procreation part of God's original purpose for sex. Genesis 1, 27 and 28 says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And he blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Now, of course, again, the world's not wrong. Sex is meant to be pleasurable for the Christian husband and wife. I'm not not saying at all that every time we have sex, we have to be intentionally trying to make a baby. Nor am I saying that some means to prevent the making of a baby are wrong, as long as they don't end the life of a fertilized embryo, also known as a tiny human being. Now, as an aside, um, this isn't really part of my sermon, but I do want to say that a lot of people are unaware that many, many common birth control pills and other things, some IUDs and things, um, they can actually function like the Plan B pill, essentially aborting the life of a fertilized egg by preventing it from implanting in the uterus. And so, that's just, like I said, that's just an aside. Please do your homework if you use any form of birth control. Again, I'm not, I'm not anti-birth control. I'm just telling you, do your homework. However, uh, this is where you might disagree with me. And as Bryce would say, you're free to disagree. It's okay. You're wrong. Um, I think that the biblical call in Genesis to be fruitful and multiply means that people who are married and consequently people who are married and having sex with one another who are not at least open to the possibility of having children, I think they misunderstand God's design for marriage and for sex. And ultimately, I think they're veering more toward the world's design for sex, which is that sex is only about you. See, God tells us, be fruitful and multiply. Now, I'm not saying, again, that every time a married couple engages in sex, they've got to be trying to baby make. That's not it at all. I'm saying that they need to be open to the possibility in order to fall in line with what God teaches If married sex doesn't ever allow for the possibility of procreation, I think it makes sex selfish. Now, I know, I know, pregnancy can be awful. Childbirth can be excruciating. Raising children completely alters everything about your life and your priorities and your future. I know that not everyone thinks those things are for them. But this aversion that we feel sometimes toward childbearing 
And child rearing is ultimately a prideful result of the fall. I think it's evidence of a marriage and a life that wants what God gives us without surrendering any of ourselves to Him. Now, now please don't hear what I'm not saying today. I know that many people struggle with infertility. I'm not saying that if you're married and you don't have kids, that you're living in sin. Don't hear that. Don't hear that. I'm simply saying that God's design for marriage is to be open to the possibility of procreating, of establishing a household in God's sovereign timing, however, however that works for you. And so uh, if you, there's, there actually is a box of tomatoes. Throw them at Bryce, not me, if uh, that made anybody mad. All right, last, number six. The world says that sex is the highest goal. But the Bible says sex is a means to our highest goal. See, for the world, sex is like the, the, the pinnacle, what, what we seek after. Everything is about sex for the world. I mean, we have a whole cultural movement that has convinced people that their sexual desires are where their identity lies. And that they should be defined by their sex, sexuality. Now, I think this probably has its roots in the teachings of Freud, who, if you have any familiarity with him, maybe you took a psychology class in, in high school or college, Freud believed that sexual desire was at the center of what motivates humans to do everything. And so for the world, sex is the highest expression of identity. It's also the highest expression of love. I mean, if you love somebody, you move in, you have, you know, you have sex, that's, that's what the world teaches. But Jesus teaches us that our highest priority is to sacrifice ourselves. That is the highest expression of love for the Christian. See, John 15, 13 says, Greater love has no one than this, than someone lay down his life for his friends. Now, I know the context of that passage isn't explicitly the bedroom. I'm not asking you to be a martyr in the bedroom. But married sex should be a model of self-sacrifice, of giving up your own needs, of counting your spouse's needs more high, or high, higher than your own as your highest goal. And in this way, sex that honors God, God, that puts our spouse's needs ahead of our own and puts ourselves last, is an illustration of the gospel. Ephesians 5 says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. What do you think it means to give yourself up for your spouse as Christ gave himself up for the church. Now I know, I know Ephesians is not just telling us about sex, right? It's talking about in all of life, give yourself up. So it's much more than sex, but it certainly isn't less. See, when husband and wife participate in this most sacred, God-designed, covenant-ratifying experience, they have an opportunity to lay down themselves to lay down their own insecurities, to lay down their own needs, to lay down all their vulnerability, to lay everything in the arms of their lover, 
and to give themselves away to become one flesh. May this be the kind of sex that we desire, the kind of sex that we give, the kind of sex that we uh, pursue if we are unmarried. Sex that outdoes one another in showing kindness. That counts one another as more significant than ourselves. So that as we delight in one another's body as, bodies as the Bible calls us to, that we would find joy in the God who created sex for our good and for His glory. Will you pray with me? God, we thank you for the gift of sexual intimacy. God, thank you that you designed it and you knew exactly what you were doing. God, and nothing about it is a mistake. God, we thank you that you have placed parameters around sexual activity that are for our good and for your glory. God, if there are those here who um, have sinned sexually, Lord, I'm sure in some ways we, we all have and do at one time or another. God, would you remind us of the beauty of what you've done for us at the cross? God, that you've made possible forgiveness for us. God, and if we would confess and repent, Lord, you will forgive and make us white as snow. God, and I pray for the married couples in this room. God, that you would remind them that sex is not about them individually, but it's about the two becoming one. About re-ratifying that covenant. About laying down their own needs. And counting their neighbor, their spouse, as more significant than themselves. God, would you teach us to be defined as a people who outdo one another in showing kindness. God, who are generous to a fault. God, for as you have so freely given to us, God, we are called to freely give. God, thank you that every good and perfect gift comes from you, including the gift of intimacy between husband and wife. God, would you help us to use it for your glory as we seek to honor you in every other area of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.